I'd like to I'd like to take a, a few weeks to go through the the book of Job. In order to do that, we're going to have to do a, a very broad stroke, uh, very very broad stroke, um, uh, because it, it's a book that can be we can easily get bogged down in, and and yet and we would we can miss the premise of the book, which is the sovereign, um, sus, uh, sustaining work of God uh, with His people in the midst of suffering and in the midst of trials, but. Um, but I, I wanted to to jump right in this morning, and I'm ready to jump in so quickly. I feel like I'm forgetting something. Um, but but so let's take our, our time and let's read through the first two chapters of the book together. So we have uh, the scenario. Most of us are familiar with the story, but let's read it together anyway. And this is really just the first part of the testing of Job. Uh, the the testings continue with his ungodly the ungodly counsel that is offered to him by his wife and his and three of his friends and so we're going to spend some time in the first couple of chapters seeing um, the righteous that is under fire um, we're going to see the counsel of the wicked and then we're going to see the Lord preparing him with his truth and then the Lord himself will address the matters that Job. Um, was uh, was undergoing. Let's begin reading in verse number one of uh, Job chapter one. <clears throat> there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless. He was upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Well, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He was he possessed seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, and. 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that the so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them when the days of the feast had had run their course job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning he would offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. <clears throat> now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on, on the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan answered the Lord and said to him, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and, and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch, your hand, stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Well, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, um, the, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came yet another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups um, and made a raid on the camels and took them, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across and, and across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell up upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came, um, also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him from evil? Uh, there is none like him in, on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery which, uh, with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you, not, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this, this evil that, he, that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nameathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's go to the Lord this morning and ask for his help. Our Father, we are um, approaching... A, a, a book that you have left for us that reveals to us the, the, the works and the ways of our sovereign God. And for this we are thankful. But because it speaks of spiritual matters and because it speaks about you and what you do in the life of, uh, life of your people, we confess that we need your help. 
And we are thankful that you have given to us your spirit who dwells within us, who does that very thing. And so we ask for your help. We ask that you would illumine our eyes that we might, um, might see you for who you are and to see what you do and to rest confidently and hopefully and peacefully in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at these couple of chapters, and we're going to be coming back to these chapters in the weeks to come. But I want to look at these the, this chapter in in three different from different three different. I want to make three observations from these chapters. First of all, I want us to see Job as uh, in his righteousness, or as he is described as the righteous one. And then we want to see the the accuser in his accusation against Job. And then we want to see the. Uh, testing by fire or the trial of fire that is brought about by God himself. The, the, the first interest that, that catches my mind and my heart uh, when I read this passage of scripture, and quite honestly, when I read many other scriptures throughout, throughout the Bible that deal with, with men or women who are declared to be righteous, I think it's important for us to, at least for me, it's important for me to stop and to consider what exactly that means. It's interesting here that the author gives to us three accounts of Job's righteousness, if you will. Verse number one of chapter one, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless. He was upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The second account that is given to us in verse number eight of chapter one is actually the Lord that is speaking and he is referring to Satan and Satan, the Lord is referring to Job this way. He said, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in all the earth, a blameless and a upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then the third time that he is brought up, it is brought up is in the second chapter in the third verse where the Lord again is referring to Job and he gives the same account. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. I think the first thing we want to come, first thing we want to recognize this is that, recognize about this acknowledgement of Job being righteous is that God is the source of all righteousness. He is righteous. And he is the source of all righteousness. Immediately in the opening chapters of this book, we learn that Job was not only a righteous man before men, but more importantly, he was a man that was righteous before God. And that's where it really counts. It is easy to be righteous before men. We can all do that because we can always find somebody that is not as righteous as we are and compare ourselves to them, and we can feel good about ourselves. Unfortunately, we are normally the other person, what other people are looking to, for, to compare for themselves to make themselves feel, about, feel good about them. It's easy to compare ourselves by ourselves, and that's foolish. And, and if you are here today and you're measuring yourself, your righteousness by the righteousness of others, let me tell you, you can find a lot of accounts where you can find others who would mess up, even among believers. And you can feel real good about yourself, but where it really counts is, what does God have to say about it? And what we find here is that Job, that with God, God had much to say about Job. He recognized Job to be one who is righteous. Now, I know that in the text, that word righteous is not used. Um, but it is evident that Job was, in God's eyes, in right standing before him. We would use the word righteous. 
So he is in right standing before God. And one of the points the author is establishing, I believe, at the very outset of this book is that even the righteous suffer. We are not exempt from suffering. As a matter of fact, if you are familiar with what Jesus told his disciples, we should actually expect to suffer. And we're going to get back to that in just a minute. And we'll get back to that again throughout our study of the book of Job. Later on, Job's friends will assume that the reason Job was suffering was because of unconfessed sin. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes we, we reap the consequences of our own sin, but it is not a universal principle. Job adamantly denied his, his, uh, this, and he later, later the Lord affirmed this, but, but this is the common deduction that bad things only happen to bad people. That's just not true. Even the righteous suffer. Now, before we move on, I, I, want to, I want to be sure that you understand, and I, I know that for the, for the most part, for most of us here, we understand this, but bear with me for just a minute because I don't want anyone to leave here this morning believing that they can be in right standing before God simply by straightening up and cleaning up their life so that they are upright and that they are fearing God and that they, they flee from evil. You do not approach righteousness and you do not acquire righteousness by the works of the flesh and the energy of the flesh. I want you to be sure that you understand that Job's right standing before God was not the result of his behavior in the world. Job did not acquire a righteous standing before God by any merit on his own. Know this, that when you read that Job was blameless and upright, feared God and turned away from evil, when you read that Job had a right standing before God, know that it says more about God than it does about Job. It reveals to us God's mercy to a vile, wicked sinner. That is true of Job, that is true of all who have come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Job's righteousness was from God. Job had a right standing before God because God provided the means by which his sins might be covered in anticipation of the coming Messiah. We get a glimpse of this in the first five verses of the chapter, his bird offerings on behalf of his children. Although there is, there is little to go on here, it is evident that Job knew the welfare of his children before God depended upon God, and therefore, on their behalf, he pleaded their cause. He offered these offerings up to God on their behalf in case they had turned their backs on God. So by faith, Job placed his hope in God and what he provided for an atonement or a covering for his sin. Now very quickly, recall Paul's description of all of mankind outside of Christ. There's many different portions in the New Testament that describes the heart of man. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. It's as though Paul knew our answer to him, but I know a guy. Not even one. 
So a person can, on the outside, live a moral way, live in a moral way, and do moral things that appear to be righteous. But at the core of every human being is a heart radically corrupted by sin and an attitude that is hostile toward God. In addition, Romans goes on to say that within the heart of man there is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans chapter 8 makes it clear that the mind is set on the flesh to flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. So if Job was in the sight of God a truly righteous man, we have to know that God had drawn him to himself and provided the means by which his sin might be covered and Job by and covered and, and Job by faith believed God. Much like we read of Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The same is true for you today, right? Aren't you glad? For those of us who know that truth uh, in, in its reality, uh, isn't it a wonderful, wonderful news to be reminded of? All this morning we've been reminded of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us, not by our personal merit, but by God's mercy and God's grace. But if you're here today and you're seeking to get right before God, you will not acquire it. You will, you will not acquire that righteousness by cleaning up your life. You're not even going to be an in, in, a, a, a little bit more righteous today by enduring, I don't know the right word, by enduring, my, my enduring the, listening to this guy speak for the next however few minutes. You're not going to clean up your life on your own. Your, your only hope is to come and to turn to God. Acknowledge that you are a sinner and you acknowledge your sinful condition. And this is the work of God in your heart. This is the work of his spirit that, that perhaps he's working in your heart now. I, I don't know. The spirit moves how he wants to move. And perhaps he's moving and working in your heart. Perhaps today you are seeking to be right with God. But know that as, if you're going to be right with God, it comes first to an acknowledgement of your sinful condition and a need for a savior. And by God's grace, I would call you to, by faith, by faith alone, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Trust that Jesus' life, trust that Jesus' sacrificial death as your substitute and resurrection is sufficient and it is complete for salvation. Now, with that said, um, by the way, just as an added note, you don't have to wait for us to be done to talk to the Lord right now. Trust Him in your seat at this very moment. I'm going to move on, but you don't. Take care of it between you, you and the Lord. And then tell me about it when we're done. But with that said, we, we, I think we are helped to note that as an outcome of Job's right standing before God, he lived in right standing before man. Right? Righteousness before God will manifest itself before man. We had a wonderful study this morning in John chapter 14. I would encourage you to join us at 845. Uh, it's good to have Isaac back teaching again. Uh, I, I so much appreciate Matt and, and Zach who taught, taught in, in, in his absence, and, and God has gifted these men to teach. Um, and I don't want to elevate Isaac more than he needs to because I don't want to bother keep cutting him down later. 
But I don't think it's too bad to say that, to, to acknowledge that God has gifted Isaac in, in teaching the word of God. And it was a refreshment for my soul. I would encourage you to join us. But in that study, we, we learn of God sending his, his helper, sending the Holy Spirit. And in, in, him, in giving to us his spirit, the very Godhead dwells in Christ and we are united in Christ. That God himself has given us his life within us. And there is a difference about us. With that difference comes a change in behavior. Not out of duty in order to gain his favor, but because we are new creations. Because God's spirit dwells within us, Right? So notice before us three, these three characteristics of godly living in, the, in this world. Blameless and upright, Job was. Blameless and upright. The idea is that Job was a man of integrity. And this is a heart condition. This is a, this is a heart issue. It's not something that is manufactured. Lost people can live healthy and moral lives and often more moral outwardly than a Christian does. But this is a heart issue. This is a work of God in the heart of man to live above reproach. Job was governed by the conviction to live above reproach. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that he was perfect at all times. We know that that's not true. That cannot be true of any man. But it does mean that the motives of his heart was to please the Lord and in so doing to please or to, to, or to, to live uprightly before man. That is the, the motive and the drive of the Christian heart. Of the, of the, of Christian, Christian heart. I know that Job wasn't a Christian. I'm going to interchange these words, and I want to be careful not to do that. But you theologues, don't be too, too critical me mixing these things up. But, but this, this really direct, directly correlates with what the, the next characteristic. He, he was blameless and upright before men because there was a fear of God within they, they correlate one with the other. The, the only way you will live in this world that is blameless and upright is to fear God. And the idea of fearing God is fearing God as opposed to fearing man. We fear God more than we fear man. When you live as a man pleaser, in case you have not already discovered, if you live as a man pleaser, you're going to discover you don't please anyone. And you're going to find yourself in a constant turmoil always concerned about what people will think. Your life will be a roller coaster, fearing that you will disappoint someone. Hey, get over it. You're going to disappoint someone. When your life is lived in the fear of man, always striving to please man, you will find it almost impossible to please God. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. The fear of God is the Christian, in, for the Christian is to see and to reverence God for who he is and what he did in his son. It is living in the reality of his presence. It is a quorum deo. It is living with the reality that God is in your presence at every moment of every day. The fear of God for the glory, the fear of God for the glory of God is the equilibrium of our life. We all, we all need a constant, unchanging anchor upon which we would cling. Man, the more you see going on in our world, the more you better have something to hold on tight. That fear of God is our equilibrium. It is the basis from which everything else is to be seen. It is the constant that establishes the life worth living. This then speaks to a life of holiness. 
The third characteristic, he turned away from evil. The fear of God puts life in perspective, including your sin in proper perspective. By the way, the fear of the Lord for God's people is the basis of loving him as well. Again, that Job was righteous before God and before man helps us to establish the primary tenet of the narrative, that the righteous experience trials and afflictions just as the unrighteous. So we know that the book is going to teach us about suffering, and he's speaking to believers, to those who know God. Second of all, second thing we want to look at, the first has to do with with the, the righteousness of Job. The second has to do with the accusation that was made about Job to God. We find that in both chapters. Um, I want to read those once again, and then, then we're just going to refer back to them. Look, beginning in verse number six of chapter one, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in, in the earth, from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face." Now in chapter 2, in verse number 3, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still upholds, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason, that Satan answered the Lord and said, said Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you and curse you to your face. Now, we know that in the book of Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, and that he accuses the brethren day and night, Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 12. I think it's important to note that it is the Lord who initiates the dialogue with Satan. And we're going to come back to this in just, just a bit. Um, just keep in mind that, that the Lord was not making small talk with Satan. He was not just shooting the breeze. His query, his query or his questioning regarding Satan's notice of Job was intentional. And it was for the purpose of the sufferings of Job. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. Notice three things about, about this passage that I just read. Notice, first of all, the reality of an invisible world. We, we believe that this is the word of God and that it is inspired by God and it was preserved for us to have in our hands and be able to read its account. It is not a myth. It is not a, a parable. But it is the very revelation of God giving us a glimpse into the heavenlies. Just as we find here in Job, the Apostle Peter speaks of the devil as your adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
I, I think it's interesting to read of God's interaction with the sons of God and with Satan. Now, the sons of God are, are, are referred, again, uh, speaking of, we believe they're speaking of angels, fallen angels in particular, if they are accompanied with Satan. Uh, they're mentioned in, in Genesis chapter 6 as well. Uh, so we know that these are those angels, um, these sons of God and Satan. They're gathered there. It's interesting to see this interaction. You, you have to wonder if this is a common occurrence or if this was unique to Job's situation. We, we know that Satan desired from the Lord to have Peter, that he might sift him as wheat, and the Lord gave him permission, just like he did to Job. Um, Revelation chapter 12, again, speaks of Satan as the accuser, um, as, our, as, as the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before God. Um, whatever the case may be, I, I, would, I would believe that this is a common occurrence in the heavenlies. Don't take that as God's word. Take that as Matt's word. But this is what I do believe. But, and it is, but, but we do know that it's not very likely that Job was privy to what was taking place in the heavens at this time, even though the outcome would affect his life dramatically. We know from the comments and the arguments that Job poses later on that he understood and he was aware that God was at the source of his affliction, but how it came about was probably unknown to him. In other words, Job didn't see this coming. He didn't have a dream one night or a vision of the heavens open and seeing God bragging on him to Satan and then giving him permission to, to, to um, inflict him. When Paul spoke of, of his afflictions in um, in second corinthians this is what he wrote he said we are afflicted in every way but we're not crushed we are perplexed but not driven to despair we're persecuted but not forsaken we're struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body in the body the death of jesus so that the life of jesus may also be manifested in our bodies so we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, trans are transient or are temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, life extends beyond our material world into the spiritual realm. There is more to life, quite literally, there is more to life than meets the eye. This is why Jesus exhorts us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven rather than on the earth. And Paul instructs us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And that Jesus warns that one's life does not consist in the abundance of the possessions, uh, possessions that we have. Or he questions what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul. The things that we see and experience in the material world has a spiritual counterpart. And as Christians, we do well to keep this in mind when the glitter and the allure of this world attempts to draw us into its web. That is not, again, that's, that's not to make things spooky type of a thing. It just means that we serve a sovereign God. 
who transcends all, and, it is, and, and of his own volition, and, and of, his own good, of his own glory, involves himself in the affairs of his creation. So the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. There's a spiritual aspect to real life. The second thing I want us to notice is I want us to notice the accuracy, accuracy of Satan's assessment. Satan's argument against God was straightforward. The only reason that Job served and loved God, his accusation was, was because he was healthy, wealthy, and wise. God had prospered him, and although Job loved the things that God had done for him, he really didn't love God. He loved his gifts. His second accusation against Job was, was, um, was that of, of, um, of self-centered worship. As long as his own well-being was not affected, God could be considered to be good. But as soon as personal pain and suffering was experienced, Satan er- argued that, uh, that, um, that Job would, would curse God to his face. Let me ask you, do, do you suppose that Satan knew what he was talking about? I, I would assert that he did. In fact, I would argue that Satan probably knows you better than you know you. He's had 6,000 years of experience. He knows the customs and the ways of men. He knows what, pushes, what, what buttons to push. Like a little brother, he knows how to push those buttons, and he uses it. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that outside of Christ, we, we, we live in the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of the body and the mind. We were, before Christ, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. In other words, the, the whole of mankind, the whole of the human race, lives to please its own self. According to the passions of own flesh, whatever feels good, do it, to quote the 60s anthem. For the un- unregenerate man... His entire world centers upon the temporal nature of his own selfish desires and passions. So a religious person, religious in quotes, unquotes, so a religious person will be faithful to carry out his religious duties and pursue a morality, but if God withholds his goodness, man will do just as Satan has proposed. Now, in the same vein, when contrasting the, the, the Christian who, who has received the Holy Spirit from the non-Christian who lives according to the flesh, the Apostle Paul says that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Again, this is the work of God in our hearts. It doesn't mean that we're in perfection. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't live to please our own selves. It means that there is a change of heart. There's a change of desire. There's a change of motive that drives us to pleasing God. We love God, not because we have made up our mind to love God, but we love God because God has manifested himself to us. If you were here this morning at 845, you would understand it more clearly because Isaac Isaac explained it a little bit more. But Paul goes on to say, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. So Satan's assessment of Job was accurate for an unregenerate man. But it was not accurate for Job. 
For the man of God who walks in the fear of the Lord, he serves God because the love of Christ compels him to it. Job, by God's grace, knew the God he served and stood rightly before him. We see that in his remarks. We see the remarks of him, the see that in the words that he says, naked I came into my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had a right perspective because he had a right standing before God. Though he slay me, I will not curse him. That's a work of God in his heart. Job, by God's grace, knew that God, the God he served, and he stood rightly before him. And, and it's, again, that's not to say that a Christian is, has left behind all, all his selfish, selfish ways. Unfortunately, we still wrestle with the selfish passions of our flesh, much in every way. But, but again, God's grace, in, by God's grace, he continues to sanctify us and transform us to the likeness of his son. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. One day, one day we will be free from this mortal body, and we will have a body like Jesus. We will be like him, and no longer will we live for ourselves. But we do live for ourselves. But the difference in the Christian and why Satan was wrong in his assessment of Job is the sustaining grace of God. Okay, don't miss that. The, the difference between Job and, and an unrighteous man at the same time was God's sustaining work in the life of Job. For the New Testament saint, by God's promises, and, and listen very carefully, for us who are on this side of the cross, who have been grafted into the new covenant by God's promises in the new covenant through the blood of Christ, we have been given a new heart. This heart of stone has been given, has been made a heart of flesh. God has softened it toward him and the law is written upon it. His law is written upon it. God claims us to be his God. And, and willingly and lovingly, we, we claim him to be our God. He has given to us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us permanently so that the very life of Christ dwells within us. And in the final analysis, with both Old Testament and New Testament saints, it is God who calls, and it is God who sustains his own to follow after him, even through the trials and the tribulations of life, which will come to every one of us. Our hope rests not in our ability to hold on. Hang on tight. Our hope and our confidence finds in God's faithfulness to his promises, God's faithfulness to his people, God's faithfulness to his covenant. This is our hope for eternal life. This is our hope for life now. So no matter what you face, you know that God continues to sustain his people. I'd like to suggest to you that the book of Job teaches, among other things, that God sustains and preserves his own for his own glory. The eternal security of the believer rests in the faithfulness of God. I recall the passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 12, actually a passage we just read again, read, read before, but speaking of those who are accused by the accuser of our brothers, 
who accuses them day and night, they have conquered him by their self-will, by their willpower, and by their own strength. They overcame the wiles of the devil. Aren't you glad it doesn't actually say that? They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. There's our hope, folks. Notice one last thing, and we're going to end on this, and it's going to be a, a yeah, we're going to end on, the, on this. But notice, notice the testing by, by God. Verse 12 says that the Lord said to Satan, and he calls, attention, calls Satan's attention to Job. He does that twice, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, and verse 6. There are two important things I want us to consider here. First, Satan is constrained by God. We're thankful for this. God has given a great deal of leeway to Satan. I wish he'd shortened that leash a little bit, but it always, baff, it always baffles me when I read about Peter. Peter, Peter, Satan would have, have you that he may sift you as wheat. Don't worry, buddy, I'm praying for you. In my mind, I'm thinking, could you not have just said, no, don't touch him? No, and same with Job. He gave him permission. But Satan is constrained by God. As much leeway as Satan was given in dealing with Job, he was still under the constraints of our loving, almighty God. Satan could do only what God allowed him to do to Job. But the second thing I want you to note, and we're going to go into more detail next week, but I want you to note that it was God who initiated Job's trials. It wasn't Satan. Satan was used by God to do what God wanted to do. It is important to note that, that it is the Lord who initiates that dialogue. When the Lord draws into the conversation his servant Job, he was doing it with the intent of, of bringing affliction upon his righteous servant Job. Now, this is foreign to the Western mindset because we, are, we, we have... We have carved out for ourselves a culture of comfort and ease. Um, this is not in and of itself evil. As a matter of fact, I, I propose that the, the, the creature comforts that we can enjoy today is a blessing from God, and we ought to bless, enjoy it and bless God for it. But God's blessings cannot be defined merely by creature comforts. God's blessings are also defined by trials of various kinds, so that the apostle James said, to count it all joy. Job himself acknowledged that in the midst of, acknowledged in the midst of his frustration, hear his frustration and then his conclusion. Behold, and we, we'll read this at the end of in chapter 23. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I don't even know where God is. Backward, I, I, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. I don't know where God is in my life. But he knows, Job says, but he knows the way. He knows the way that I take. I can't see him. I know he sees me. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. The psalmist wrote, it is good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. Paul spoke of his suffering for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
Encouraging the displaced Christians in Asia Minor, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a ro ro roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the point? What's the point? Suffering in this world for the Christian should not catch us by surprise, nor should it be seen as out of the ordinary. For much of, the, of church history, much of the history of, of the church and much of the present day church, suffering is the norm, not the exception. The church around the world, many suffering is the norm. And my prayer is that in our study of the book of Job, God in his grace will teach us not only to be, not only to be surprised, not to be surprised by suffering, and that he will empower us to suffer well. For it is God who calls, and it is God who sustains his own. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of, God's re of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Oh, dear God, may that be, may that be a reality in our lives. May we rejoice in the creature comforts you have afforded us. You have poured out upon us as a people in the United States, an abundance beyond any historical record. Help us, Lord, to resist letting our creature comforts be our God or our gods, but help us to look to you with thanksgiving and with praise knowing that any moment, in a day's time, in a 24-hour period, everything could be removed, including our health. May we, like Job, by your grace, declare, though he slay me, yet will we serve him. Teach us to suffer well. In Jesus' name, amen.